Welcome to the Longevity Week podcast, hosted by the Longevity Forum. We'll be featuring podcasts all week on the theme, The Age of Resilience, which you can catch online, thelongevityforum.com. Today, Andrew J. Scott, co-founder of the Longevity Forum and professor of economics at LBS, will be interviewing George McGinnis on our aging society. Now to you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, For those of you listening, George is the Healthy Aging Challenge Director at UKRI. And as we're going to find out in this podcast, that's a really interesting new government-led initiative, which I think is going to be a really important part of making healthy aging a reality. We talk a lot about what needs to happen, and George is there trying to make it happen. So thank you for joining us, George. Tell us a little bit about the Healthy Aging Challenge, what the UKRI is doing, and of course your own role there. So the Aging Society Grand Challenge is about recognising that we're all living longer. On average, I think your own book says something like 20 years longer than our grandparents. But more of those extra years are spent in poor health. So the Grand Challenge is about ensuring that people can enjoy at least five extra healthy, independent years of life. So my role as Challenge Director at UK Research and Innovation is to lead delivery of a sizable investment to enable people to remain active, productive, independent, and socially connected across the generations for longer. So this is really about seizing what I would call the longevity dividend. We hear a great deal about an ageing society. We know there's more old people, but we've also discovered that we are living for longer. And to some degree, age is malleable. We can do something about it. And of course, that's the heart of your, uh, your target, that magnificent, quantitative, but ambitious target of five more years of healthy life. So what sort of drew you to the role and what was sort of your interest in the topic? So I'd love to be say that actually I wrote my own job specification, but in truth, they came looking for me. But I suppose what instantly grabbed my attention was the chance to work on something that was about prevention, that it was aligned to a real national priority and came with authority to direct. So in that respect, it was a really attractive role. And I've been involved in a number of previous quite high-profile initiatives looking to transform health and care, particularly focused on older people. But in truth, many of them have not fulfilled their promise. And I thought this was a real opportunity to come with those lessons and make a difference. That's really interesting. I'd love to dig around a little bit more about you know what needs to be done differently, because, of course, this is a big experiment. And how does this fit in with UKRI? Because I think what's interesting to me is, if I understand this right, Obviously, there's a lot of focus on the science and the health system, but this is looking at sort of some of the other features that would support a longer, healthier life. Is that right? So it is. I mean, the great thing about where I sit is that it actually it spans across UK, UKRI, so that there's all sorts of interesting people working on different aspects of ageing. What we're focused on in particular are innovations around services that can go to scale and in the research domain, extending beyond sort of medical and engineering science into social and behavioral science uh, and design. Uh, And that's really sort of saying there's been quite a lot of innovation in early stage technologies, et cetera, in this area, but many of them have not scaled. So it's actually the human behavioral aspects that are much more important in trying to understand how we make a population level impact. Yeah, and I think that's right. I love that focus on the behavioural change. So you, you've been in post a couple of years. It's obviously a, a sort of a new initiative. What's been the biggest learnings or the biggest surprises so far? 
I suppose the surprise revelation was to really think through how having a sense of purpose in later life, whether through paid work, volunteering or or supporting the next generation was so important. Uh, And so moving beyond, if you like, that focus just on technology to think what are the broader aspects of uh, later life that we could make a real difference with. So that's also how your own thinking evolved in this space. But is that something you're finding out that sort of everyone has, or it's something you need to try and encourage in the population? Oh, I think it's definitely something that we need to encourage. I was just reflecting. It's actually only four years since you published The Hundred Year Life. I think there's much more to do to embed that sort of thinking, sort of across government, uh, within business, uh, and actually helping people to understand their own later life. And I think sort of two aspects have jumped out of that for me. One is, and I've mentioned earlier, the focus on services, and the other is the, the piece on inequalities that the grand challenge comes with. And I think if I thought about the focus on service, that goes back to lots of innovation has been funded in the past, but it's not taken off. So how do we shift the emphasis from advancing technology readiness in an organization where that's really within our DNA towards helping businesses, including social enterprises, to design and deliver a complete experience that people actually want and indeed can afford? So that's the service bit. And I think the the final phrase in the grand challenge, while reducing the gap between the experience of the richest and the poorest, really begs a question, how does this work alongside conventional approaches to innovation, where traditionally, if you took things like the iPad or whatever, things come in as really expensive, they take off with populations that can afford to pay, as volumes grow, price comes down, and eventually they percolate down. Can we afford to wait for that or are there other approaches to innovation that we can invest in? And I think we've had to think about investing in new approaches, particularly in terms of uh, impact investment, to demonstrate how our projects will make a difference. So you mentioned this sort of five-year goal for an extra healthy life, which I think is a great one. It's also, of course, a huge one. And so much of, I think, healthy aging actually lies outside what we traditionally see as the health system. So how do you break it down? Because that's such a big target. Do you think about you know, particular channels or intermediate targets? How do you think about allocating the funds that you're referring I think what you highlight is that we are working in an incredibly complex area. And I recognise, and I think I recognise right from the start, that actually there was no clear mechanism for saying, if you do this, you'll get an extra year of healthy life. So we've been helped to think about what we need to be influencing by the Centre for Aging Better, who developed a framework of seven themes. And when I started out, I thought that three of those themes were going to really stand out and and help us drive this forward. The first about remaining active and encouraging physical activity. The second, thinking about the home and how do we make the home more age-friendly so people can uh, continue living in their own communities for longer. And the last was innovations to address what were referred to as the common complaints of ageing. And this, uh, in my view, is not about heart disease and diabetes, but it's more about mitigating the impact of things like sight loss, hearing impairment, incontinence, the things that make a difference to people being able to get out and about. I think on the way what I've learned also is that creating great environments that people want to enjoy is probably just as important as addressing individual needs. So we've taken that sort of fairly broad portfolio approach, 
we've got not one or two big bets, but we've tried to spread, if you like, in a number of broader um, opportunities so that we can see as time goes on which is making the biggest difference, where we can adapt and learn and bring something else new. It's the beginning of a movement rather than a program that will deliver a final solution. I agree. I mean, we're still very much experimenting, aren't we? I think also changing the narrative and making people aware of the agenda is key. And, you know, my background as an economist was in things like monetary policy, where we talk about a transmission mechanism. You put a lead like interest rates and you map out how it affects inflation. And we sort of need that for healthy life expectancy. We kind of need to know what those levers are. And that sounds a great list that you gave us. And I think they are the key ones to target. You know, but finding out what the instruments are and out what the effect is, I think is a big part of what you're trying to do. You talked earlier about inequality. And uh, you know, clearly, it's been getting widening uh, a gap in terms of health and life expectancy. I wondered sort of what your thoughts were on that one, because in, in many ways, you know, it should be easier to bring up the healthy life expectancy of those who are lagging behind, um, because you're kind of not trying to discover new ways of doing things. You're just trying to sort of pull them up to the level that other people have. So in a way, it should be easier to do that than to further increase the life expectancy of those who already have very high life expectancy. But I'm not sure if that's actually the case. I, I mean, I wonder what your views were on that, and in particular, what different channels you might need to use to target those who have the poorest healthy life expectancy. And I would agree with you. I don't think it is the case, because I think what we've seen is the gap between the richest and the poorest growing, which suggests it's easier for people with more resources to extend their life than it is for people with fewer resources. And I think this is an aspect of, of the thing of the moment, diversity inclusion, that, that's actually really important. And in making it important, actually what we find is is that many other aspects of inequality are focused on, on those with economic inequalities. So I think in terms of the grand challenge, I think this is where a cross-government piece really kicks in as this is a really truly complex problem. So how do you work in communities where not only are there no gyms, but if you built one, they probably wouldn't afford to pay for themselves. They, they don't have the sort of choice and opportunities and, and the vast gardens and the green spaces that other people may enjoy. So, and, and that is a truly wicked problem that actually needs cross-government action. I think what we can do is really help innovators to focus and focus particularly on inclusive designs and co-production of solutions with the populations experiencing those inequalities. So that means that there are still watchwords around innovations being both attractive and affordable, but in the context of affordable to a mass population rather than to a select few. Yeah, I think that co-production is key because I think you know, one of the issues is we've been hearing for ages how big this market is, um, how large it's going to get, but it still does seem increasingly poorly served. As you're saying, obviously, there are some uh, at the sort of higher income end, but as a mass market, it does seem to be one that's missing, but firms also struggle with it. So what do you find in terms of some of the startups and proposals happening? How do you select the ones you think are going to work best or what's your instinct for what needs to be done? You talked earlier that you'd seen some sort of learn from some past mistakes. What are some of the key learnings you're trying to put into practice now? I suppose I start in the, with the past mistakes. 
and not so much mistakes, but learning from, from what was happening, that changing the way that the health and care system pays for things, so expecting this to come through the social welfare system was probably the wrong approach. Um, wrong because if you lead businesses down a lane that says we'll change everything and then you don't, they actually go to the wall. So we've been really encouraging businesses to look at opportunities that actually are affordable before people need health and social care. But we've also been focusing on a population that is younger than the traditional, if you like, medically frail older person that is the key focus of of our health and social care systems and that again uh, opens up opportunities opens up opportunities for people who are approaching retirement or in 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 their sort of early um, retirement years where they have actually more resources their behaviors are more modifiable and they're more more amenable to picking up services but actually that comes with a conundrum. Uh, and I think you're, you're right. So if the sort of big economic analysis sort of says that this is a demographic that has something like three quarters of the nation's wealth. But why don't they spend it on these sorts of things? Well, it comes down to age is probably the one thing that people stop wanting to be older around about when they're 20, and various things become legal. So that's the piece about inclusive design that what people want is something that is generally attractive and useful. And I know it's a really sort of simple example, but been trailed out many times, but the Good Grips kitchen implements are a really good example of something that was designed for people with arthritis, but actually proved to be just good kitchen implements. The kitchen implement thing is a bit simplistic, but, but I think we can do much more in the way that we design homes, design communities that are inclusive to older people rather than something that's a special that people need to move into when they get to a stage where they can no longer um, deny the fact that they're going to need a high level of support. No, I agree. I think one of the reasons firms struggle with this market, they kind of think 65 plus is a single homogenous market. And I think it's got great diversity. It kind of needs to be pinned down. There's some shifts and stereotypes. And of course, there's many links with what happens pre-65. So it's a bit of an elusive market to just go looking for it's like any market it has many different contours and, and different shades and i think your focus on a little bit earlier is also really key i think we're a bit messed up with aging we think aging is a kind of end of life but of course it's about all of life if we're trying to age more healthily aging is recursive so if you can make a start earlier then that helps the next stage which then helps the the next stage how have firms been responding to your initiatives what sort of reaction have you been getting We've had a fabulous level of response from firms, uh, as well as actually from researchers and investors. And that's given us a real opportunity to pick a number of early stage investments that are really ready to move on uh, to the next stage. But we've always been conscious that actually this is an emerging market. So we can't just focus on those firms that were really together and, and ready. Uh, we've also been sort of moving some of our um, investment from its original intent to support some of that earlier stage development as well. So there's a great movement. Uh, I think the proof is actually going to be in the pudding in terms of can they actually get the traction uh, that they're looking for. And, and the, the early signs are really very positive. So when you you know you you went out for a, a call and you had all these replies, which of the areas uh, that you listed do you feel have gone really well and you're most excited about? Which ones are sort of um, you need to get more traction and get more uh, involvement from? 
So the area that jumped out probably as a surprise, as something that was uh, amenable to what we were doing, is the built environment. So we've seen quite a lot of interest in home modifications, actually even constructing new dementia-friendly communities. So modular design houses in a brand new village, etc., fitted with, with technology. And I think when I started, my view, and I'm an engineer by background, was that the built environment costs a lot and takes too long to actually have an impact in our time frame. And I'm really encouraged by what I'm seeing coming through on that. So I'm delighted to have been proved wrong, if you like, in my opening hypothesis. I think the area where I would like to see much more is in the area of generating and sustaining physical activity because I think that's one of the cornerstones of aging healthily and is also an alternative mechanism to to work or or a parallel mechanism in some cases to work for people to engage and feel socially connected. And I'd really like to see us able to invest in more in in, in that area. Yeah, it's interesting. It surprised me too. And I have noticed the sort of response of real estate. I I do wonder if it's because of these very long uh, lived capital projects they're just thinking in advance and trying to anticipate some of the trends but it is striking how much progress you you kind of expect as you said the sort of the heavy capital stuff to be a slower response than perhaps the easier things around exercise um obviously we're talking about the uk but this is a global phenomena how do you think the uk is performing or compared to elsewhere i mean this is obviously a nascent industry but what was your instinct about where the uk stands well, I think there's no doubt that a government commitment like the Grand Challenge has really attracted attention right around the world, and that's great. I have to give credit, actually, where credit's due to work done elsewhere. I've seen some really impressive work in Canada, the US, our EU neighbours. You know, We're aware of stuff going on in, in the Far East as well. So we're not alone. Or I would say we're not clearly ahead of the pack, but I think the UK has some clear strengths, strengths in creative talent, in engineering, and a strong legacy of helping people to remain independent for longer. So in terms of comparing internationally, I think we're up there with the race. We have some distinctive elements, but we actually have so much to learn from and share with the others as well. And I would like to get through this without mentioning COVID, but I really can't. It's obviously uh, been a hugely disruptive force. How's it impacted your agenda and your plan going forward? So I think we actually have to recognise that COVID has been a huge personal tragedy for many, both medically and, and economically. But it also has been an opportunity, and I think most noticeably in the rapid adoption of technology innovation. I think as an organisation, early on, we had quite refreshing guidance to do whatever we could to continue to help innovative companies through this crisis. And we've been lucky in being at a stage in my challenge where we could work through many of the issues raised by lockdown. So our original plan remains on track, but you know that, that will come a time when actually um, we start to need to engage much more with people in their communities, etc. And, and that will get more difficult. Uh, But in parallel to that, we've also responded, and a really great example of the response that's been possible is the Fast Response Competition that Innovate UK put together. Uh, 
it actually broke the annual record for the number of applications in just a couple of weeks. And that fabulous level of response just shows how much innovation is out there in the community and a willingness of people to redirect their business to a problem that they can see there's real value in, in solving. And I'm also really pleased that because of that level of competition, the bar for funding was really quite high. So we were able to reach into our own funds and say, here's a number of projects that we think are of really high quality that are worth pushing forward. And so we've also backed projects in, in that space. So, so far, if you like, so good with covid uh, and I'm hoping that, that actually some of that opportunity, this sort of step change in, in behaviours, in, in technology, in recognising that older people are vulnerable, but also in recognising that actually if you arrive in later life in better condition, your chances are much better as well. All of those things, I think, are real opportunities we need to seize and take forward. No, I agree. I mean, it's just obviously just emphasise the importance of healthy ageing. And, you know, we've always said about an ageing society, the important thing is to keep people healthy and out of hospital. And, of course, COVID just makes that point incredibly dramatically. It's, it's stunning the extent to which COVID is both an accelerant and a stress test on so many different dimensions. Now, I know you've got a, a multi-year programme. Just as a sort of closing point, do you want to tell us next about the next few rounds that are coming up and perhaps uh, encourage some listeners with a particular interest to apply? Uh, any uh, pointers or suggestions you can give to people? So uh, absolutely. Firstly, keep an eye on our website. Just search UKRI Healthy Ageing and you'll land there. We have, if you like, a rolling opportunity. So we've put a lot of money aside to co-invest with private investors. So our first three investors are, are legal and general Barclays and Northstar, and they will have funds available to release throughout the next three years for early stage innovations as a mixture of government grant and an equity investment on, on their part. That's a rolling competition. So when, when, when you're ready, go for it. Um, but we're really keen to make that a success and delighted that actually they have a a really good UK-wide footprint, so not just the traditional investor in the sort of golden triangle of London, Oxford and Cambridge. We are going to be bringing out further opportunities early in the new year. We're just shaping those up. We're thinking that they will be about larger projects with a very strong co-design element of it, aiming to help people with innovative ideas take something to a level where it would become investable in its own right. So, that's still sort of work in progress, but keep an eye out for that. And then for any sort of people who are in research organisations, I'd also say we have a catalyst competition for individuals with really great ideas that they would like to, to develop. Uh, we've partnered with Zinc and uh, we have a, a, an annual programme. We've just made the first round of awards uh, and the next set of competitions will be publicized very shortly so keep an eye out for that and that's an opportunity for researchers well i hope everyone listening is typing in the web address that george gave george i think you said you had a fabulous response last time hopefully we can make it an overwhelming response uh, for the next time i have to say george it's been great talking to you this is i think one of the you know one of the largest challenges we face as a society not just the uk and there's increasing awareness of the challenge and there's more and more words and talking about it but to hear someone who's actually trying to do something about it and get others to do something about it and extend the network of people involved is just fantastic news because 
as, as with all issues to do with aging, the earlier you start, the better the long run outcome will be. So thank you, George, for your time. Thanks also for your support, the Longevity Forum and Longevity Week. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. And Andrew, I'd just like to close by thanking you. And we're going to need you and all the members of Longevity Forum to keep this absolutely the top of the government agenda. So thank you very much. We'll do our best. This broadcast has been brought to you by the Longevity Forum as part of Longevity Week 2020. We are very grateful to our sponsors, Juvenescence, Bill Dickinson, and Burnbray. For more podcasts, visit our website, thelongevityforum.com, or follow us on Twitter, longevity underscore forum.